0: Hello and welcome to another interview episode with Holding the Line, Journalists Against COVID Censorship, and I'm Rusei Shoniwa. It's Monday morning, the 28th of February, and I'll be talking to James Corbett, who hosts and produces the now very well-known and very well-respected Corbett Report. The Corbett Report is an independent, listener-supported alternative news source and an outlet for independent critical analysis of politics, society, history, and economics. James himself, is an, is an award-winning investigative journalist and has lectured on geopolitics at the University of Groningen Studium Generale. He has also delivered presentations on open-source journalism at the French Institute for Research in Computer Science, at TEDx Groningen, and at Ritsumeikan University in Kyoto. So I'm delighted that James has agreed to be interviewed and to share his thoughts on the state of the world today, and indeed speculate on what the future might hold in store. James, welcome, and thank you for joining me today.
1: Thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: I want to give listeners an overview of the topics we're going to try and cover in the next hour or so. Now, um, over the last two years, the world has undoubtedly lurched lurched, into global authoritarianism, ostensibly to contain the COVID virus. We've gone from global house arrest or lockdowns to being coerced into taking an experimental and ineffective injection, which seems to have served in many places as a rite of passage to a neo-feudal digital health path and has been used by governments to gift back to citizens the very same human rights that were already intrinsically theirs. So we're talking here about the right to buy food, to work, to socialise, um, in short, the right to live. Now, in a recent court report titled States of Emergency, James, you shone a light on a paradigm of governance that is sweeping the globe. This paradigm is the declaration of, and rule by, a state of emergency. Now, many of us are keenly aware of the threat this poses to the survival of freedom and democracy, such as it is today in the West. So what I want to do here in this interview is take a look at four areas of government policy action that have offered governments and may soon offer governments great potential for perpetual states of emergency. And those four areas are COVID containment policies, Um, starting with the first and obvious one, COVID containment policies, and we'll try to review the state of global containment, um, global COVID containment, and how it's playing out in um, different countries and different regions across the globe as the narrative collapses. We'll then move to a discussion of war and the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Um, We will then discuss climate change, um, and then we'll move to um, a discussion of economic crises and economic policies. So, James, COVID. Um, the narrative is in complete freefall, the COVID narrative, could, and many would say is in a pile of ashes. Um, and yet, many governments are still in the grip of mindless and often brutal COVID containment policies that are so obviously have absolutely nothing to do with safeguarding health. What are we to make of these differences? and? I guess the question I have here is for you is has the paradigm of emergency decree suffered a serious blow or merely a temporary setback. Very
1: important questions. So the first one first, I think we can best understand this paradigm of governance by emergency that is being used uh, and employed under the fig leaf of this supposed Um, pandemic emergency, uh, we can best see that being exposed for what it is in the recent Canadian Freedom Convoy movement and the Canadian government's response to it. Because it is important to note that in the entirety of this response to this grassroots movement of blue collar workers who were there to resist and protest uh, the the vaccine mandates in Canada, not once Did any MP or the prime minister or anyone else involved in this come out to say that, no, no, we are doing this because of this medical emergency. And therefore, once such and such criterion are met, then we will ease these restrictions. Not once was it ever about that. It was only ever about the supposed threat to national security that is from an insurgency that is occupying Ottawa, of Canadian citizens protesting their own government. Uh, This is uh, an obvious power grab, and I don't think there was even an attempt to put any spin on it in any other way. This is about the power and control that is being imposed on the citizenry, not some sort of medical emergency because the prime minister cares so much about every person's individual health. Now, I, I think the other important Part of this to, to keep in mind is the recent awareness of an, uh, a trend that has taken place over the course of decades, but there has been recent awareness of the fact that so many of the cabinet members uh, in Justin Trudeau's cabinet are World Economic Forum uh, uh, related. Uh, in one way or another. For example, most obviously the Deputy Prime Minister slash uh, Finance Minister Kristia Freeland being an actual board of trustees of the World Economic Forum. And this is not some sort of incidental thing. This is something that was bragged about by none other than World, Exe- uh, World Economic Forum Executive Director Klaus Schwab himself quite recently in an infamous statement that has made the uh, rounds online that uh, we have penetrated the cabinets of all these uh, countries around the globe, including, of course, Justin Trudeau and Canada. And here, here I think we start to see that there is a broader agenda at work here that is not to do with public health, that public health is being used as a smokescreen for a real agenda of control. And I think that is most uh, made most evident to the average person by asking them to consider whether they f- actually believe that the infrastructure for this new COVID containment state, this biosecurity state that is being erected, if they believe that infrastructure is going to disappear when the pandemic is declared over, uh, I tend to believe that it will not be, that the now billions of dollars that are being invested in companies around the globe to create the QR code, digital ID, vaccine passport infrastructure is now an industry that is not going to disappear overnight simply because they declare a pandemic over. And I, I tend to believe that governments are going to continue to use this as the excuse for the further clampdown of their uh, citizen subjects rights um, for the foreseeable future. And I think I, again, I think Canada is the the point at which we see that most clearly.
0: Yes. Yes. Um, And in fact, I, I, donald plett's uh, speech to the Senate was actually quite interesting because um, he it came from a an establishment um, member of you know from the establishment section, but it also actually rationally highlighted um, why the idea that this was some sort of threat uh, to to Canada that had actually met the threshold for the declaration of, of, of a state of emergency was uh, essentially a ludicrous idea. So um, I guess my question on that is, um, you know, how's this played out? Ha- has the trucker convoy movement, is it a success or a failure? I mean, you know, to all, to all intents and purposes, it looks as though Trudeau has achieved what he wants to do. He's squashed um, that, Movement that 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 democratic process, um, but on the other hand, you know he didn't actually succeed in getting an extension of, of the state of emergency because the Senate it looked very likely, given Donald Plett's speech, that the Senate were, were not going to renew it. So, what what are we to make of it? You know, what how will that play out? Is it, was that movement a success or a failure?
1: Right. And and thank you for reminding me that I forgot to answer the second part of your original question. So let me do that now. I think that the real um, reaction to what is what is taking place and what has taken place in Canada is going to be the, the real deciding factor in all of this. I don't think this is written yet. Uh, I, I think whether or not the Canadian public and the people around the world who are watching what is happening in Canada, uh, how they react to this is going to determine what the meaning of these events. Because as I've been stressing since all of this Freedom Convoy started developing, if we see this uh, solely as some sort of trucker movement that is about truckers and the trucking industry, and it's particularized to that, then it is a failure. Because as you say, that, that moment, that movement, that convoy has been Uh, stopped at this point. But what is the meaning of that? And what did they expose about the power structure in Canada? And is the Canadian public willing to allow that to continue to accept that as the governing paradigm for Canada? And uh, I think we start to see going forward from here, the way people react to this. Now, there are some signs that I, of course, am seeing. But then again, I have selection bias in that uh, the people who are contacting me are generally the type of people who are looking for this information. So there's a selection bias that goes on there. But I am certainly hearing from a lot of people in Canada right now who are concerned about their, even just their money in, hey, I have Funds in the bank, I have I have a retirement plan, I have savings, a retirement nest egg, what am I supposed to do with this? Will they come after me if I donate to the wrong cause or something? And the answer is yes, evidently yes, they will. And these powers, once flexed, are not going to go back in the bag and never used again. This is part of a precedent that is being set. So what is the precedent that is being set? And I always want to stress that that is not set in stone yet, that depends On the public's reaction to what is happening right now so i think to the extent that this becomes normalized and what we have just seen just becomes oh that was just that thing that happened that time it was crazy but it's over if that is the narrative that is allowed to be set which of course is what i think the establishment press wants to set as the narrative for this but if the public allows that precedent to be set then, then they have one and it is game over. But I do not, I do not, I, I think we have an active part to play in this in terms of taking another look at this, spreading a different narrative and ultimately uh, reacting to it in, in a different manner than what we've been taught to, uh, to do so. Specifically, such things as starting to investigate uh, other ways of of transacting and interacting with uh, fellow free citizens. Uh, what, what does the paradigm of governance have to say about people's ability to interact and transact with each other in free exchange, even to donate to each other? And now that, for example, GoFundMe and the other fundraising sites have become come under the purview of FinTrack, which was part of the emergency act declaration that is now being made permanent, a permanent change in features, I think that goes to show what they are really afraid of, which is people coming together to Mm. support something on a wider scale. Truckers in a specific truck convoy can be dealt with and can be taken out. But people generally banding together and, and feeling an actual camaraderie over this, now that is something that keeps the World Economic Forum Board of Trustee members in the Trudeau cabinet up at night.
0: Now, on that subject... Um, I want to get to a bigger, wider question, right? What's the driving force behind state of emergency? You rightly, in one of the episodes that I watched, you talk about a need to derail the machine. Those were your words. What's the origin of the machine? And and why has virtually the entire Western world in lockstep lurched towards this paradigm overnight? You know, does the machine that you talk about have a brain? And if so, can we locate it?
1: I have likened it before to a multi-headed hydra of some sort where you cut off one of the heads of the hydra, another one will spring up to take its place. I, I think that's the wrong way of looking at it. So I think there is a guiding ideology behind the machine or whatever you want to identify it as, which is fundamentally predicated on the assumption that there is a, an inherent ruling class that deserves to rule over other human beings, and that they are best situated to guide humanity. And I'm sure there are people who adhere to various flavors of this fundamental ideology in ways that they think is beneficial to humanity. Technocracy is a great idea. It would be wonderful to have wise people who understand and have studied and really understand the the inner workings of economics and science and what have you to steward over the human population. And we can go forward into the brave new world together. Um, But I see this as just the latest iteration on what in a previous age was uh, a eugenics philosophy that they, well, genetically, there are certain people who are fit to rule over others. And before that, we had divine right of kings. Before that, the kings and pharaohs and whatever were worshipped as literal gods on earth. And I think it's uh, essentially the same type of ideology that has pervaded human society and civilization for all of recorded history. And when we identify it in that way, I think we see that this is not something that you're going to behead a king or whoever and end this, this fundamental idea, this belief. It has become so ingrained in human culture that I don't think it is that easily... Um, taken apart um, the uh, it, once we identify it in that way then the opposite the opposite ideology or a, an opposing ideology presents itself which is one of decentralization and spontaneous order um, that is often suppressed but has been talked about for centuries if not millennia in various places if you know where to look for it so um, I, I I view that as the fundamental battle that's going on and that it instantiates itself in different historical eras in different ways. And I think for this time period that we're living through right now, the easiest way to identify that is to look at a body like the World Economic Forum. There it is. There's an identifiable body with an identifiable membership with an identifiable board of trustees. And these people seem to be connected to various parts of the agenda. And they're laying it out in terms of the Great Reset and the Fourth Industrial Revolution and the ESG uh, metrics that they're coming up with. And all of these various things that we can see that are clearly related to what is happening right now. That's the easiest way to identify it. I do not think that the world economic forum controls the world and that they are the controllers of reality, but I think they are a convenient hub from which we can see the spokes of this agenda. But the core of the agenda is that ideology that there is a a clique, a group of people who believe that they are best situated to rule over the planet. And they are going to do so to consolidate and centralize control in as few few hands as possible. And there are absolutely wars that I believe do take place among that elitist upper echelon um, in terms of who's going to have the best seat at the table. But they all want the table. They want the global government of some sort to be um, erected, And I think that, that explains so much of what we're seeing that otherwise would seem inexplicable if we're still thinking of things as uh, individual nation-state leaders are working in the best interests of their nation in order to do what's right for them. That clearly does not explain the coordinated moves that we're seeing most obviously in our era in, in for example, the, 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 the approach to biosecurity, which has been instituted in virtually every nation around the world.
0: Well, so to some extent, then, uh, if the corporate, if the corporate entity, and and we can have, with our simple terms, we could call it global capitalism, the corporations are now more powerful than governments um, and seem to be represented by institutions like the World Economic Forum, then in actual fact, are we saying that governments are now no longer operating in the way that, the traditional way that they used to and that they are actually effectively captured by these elite ideologies, these interests as represented by institutions like the World Economic Forum?
1: I would only quibble to say that I don't believe the governments have ever functioned in the way that the public has been taught that they they functioned. They were never for that purpose. They were for the purpose of consolidating control and centralizing it so that it could be controlled by the well-connected Political elite it has, it was ever thus it will ever th- it will ever be thus as long as there are these centralized troughs of power over which to rule millions and ultimately billions of people. so I think it would be the height of naivety to believe that there ever was a time in which governments really were by and for the people, and that's what it was about. it never was, it never will be, um, but other than that, yes, I think your 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 framing is correct, yes, essentially, there is a global corporate slash political entity that is now ruling above the nation state systems that we in at the lowest level of the propaganda pyramid are asked to believe is the the actual governing paradigm of our our world.
0: I want to very quickly ask a question about Japan, right? Because um, Japan seems to me one of the very few countries that um, has explicitly Re- reiterated the right to bodily autonomy and 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 made statements like uh, you know well they, they have they said that they, they, you know people must choose whether or not they want to have a, uh, a an experimental injection what's going on then in japan in this perverse world i find myself asking what's wrong with the japanese <laughs> as opposed to saying look oh, you know the, the, the japanese are doing the right thing what are we to make of how this is unfolding in japan
1: It is a surprising development, even for myself, having lived here for 18 years. I would not, uh, if you had told me about all of this beforehand and asked me to guess which countries would be holdouts of some sort to the, uh, the biosecurity grid, I would not have guessed Japan. But I suppose it might just be a question of optics. So, for example, the um, Japanese government has made statements that you can go and read, even on the English version of their website, that there will be no discrimination based on vaccination status. And corporations should not be pressuring their employees to get vaccinated and things along those lines. Having said that, it is happening. And most Japanese corporations, I mean, Japan is very much a a feudal society still. It's just that the old feudal shoguns uh, transitioned into the corporate behemoths, uh, the Mitsubishis and what have you, are just the remnants of the old um, uh, feudal era here in Japan. And it is still a very top-down society. So when a corporation says, okay, guys, here's your, you know, we've scheduled all for your vaccines and whatever, people will just do it. Even if there is no explicit order to do so and no explicit threat of you will be fired if you do not do so. Most people here have been conditioned under that feudal conditioning for so many centuries that it is simply taken for granted. And I, I can definitely speak to that from my experience. Most people just would not think to put up a fight against something like that. Um, so I, to a certain extent, I think the, the pliability of the population makes it such that the heavy handedness of the biosecurity state doesn't have to be presented. They don't have to force it into people, so much as simply say, this is the way we're going to do it now, guys, and people do it. And another obvious reflection of that is the mask wearing, um, which I noted, it wasn't until about um, late 2020 into 2021 that mask wearing really became ubiquitous here. But once it did, It has been 99.9% of people, 99.9% of the time, including children, including everyone you see on the street wearing masks. And again, there's no explicit law. There's no mandate. There's no police that are going to tap on your shoulder if you're not wearing a mask. It's just the done thing. And so people do it. So unfortunately, I would love to say that this is some sort of bastion of human freedom or something, but it's it's almost the opposite. It's that people have so internalized the control structure that they don't need to be forced
0: to do anything. Yeah, interesting. James, let's move on to the subject of war. Now, I watched your uh, 24th of February episode called What's Happening in Ukraine? And you were rightly at great pains to emphasize that whatever you said in that moment in time was very liable to be quickly overtaken by fast-moving events. And here we are, uh, the Ukraine has been invaded by Russia and the lives of ordinary people are being smashed yet again by war. Now, leading up to the invasion, the NATO approach was to throw a couple of billion worth of military hardware to Ukraine. And in fact, they've been doing that ever since the 2014, although we'll discuss, I'd like to get into that. What, what is the backdrop? Give us some history to the war, because one of the things you pointed out in that episode of what's happening in Ukraine is it's very hard to present a balanced view about who's right and who's wrong, um, and who started what and when without being accused of, of being an apologist for one side or the other. So what's some useful information to have uh, as a backdrop to, to the conflict?
1: It's an incredibly important question, an incredibly difficult one to answer, because as I said in that, uh, that questions for Corbett episode that you're mentioning, it really depends on where you start the clock as to, okay, the history starts here, and then we can explain it from this way forward. So if you start the clock, as the establishment press seems to be doing at this particular moment, as, okay, uh, Putin woke up on February 21st and decided he's going to invade Ukraine. Uh, Well, then, of course, Russia is the evil bad man that you know, and Putin is just the, the psychopathic murderer that we we know him to be. Um, but what if we what if we set that clock backwards just a little bit? I and mean, you could look at, for example, at the um, tens of millions of dollars of aid in various non lethal, um, non military funding, but funding to regime change type operations to democracy promoting groups in Ukraine um, over the past uh, several years by, say, the National Endowment for De- Democracy slash U.S. aid. But then again, if you go back just that far, you won't get to the $5 billion of aid to Ukraine that was um, talked about, for example, by then State Department operative uh, Victoria Newland back in 2013-14 as the euro Maidan regime change operation in ukraine started to take place so we could definitely put those events in to start to widen the perspective we could go further back we could go to the 1990s when time after time after time um representative after representative of different nation states in the nato organization guaranteed gorbachev and then yeltsin on numerous occasions we will not move one inch east we will not move past this point we will not incorporate poland we will not etc etc every single one of those promises of course having been broken we could move the clock back we could go back to the 1920s which is when uh Putin asserts that the modern state of ukraine was really founded by lenin um uh, well 1918 i suppose is when he situates it which is when Uh, The Donetsk Donbass region was asking for its separate recognition as uh, its own republic within the Soviet republics. And Lenin said, no, 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 you're going to have to become part of the Ukraine. And it's going to be one government for all of Ukraine. So that's where Uh, Putin situates the creation of modern day Ukraine and says, look, this is a historical creation. It's not real. We could go further back. We could go back to the (laughs) even Rus' 11th century. Where do you start the clock? That's the question which sets the context for what we're seeing today.
0: Let's, okay, let's, I mean, I think, let's start at 2008 Uh, or or rather, well, 2008 to 2014 because 2008, we know that um, tensions um, ratcheted up uh, rapidly, when um, you know both the Ukraine and Georgia were promised um, membership in NATO, and of course that that in itself was 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 a was a highly sort of threatening move. But we come to 2014, right? Let's talk about the 2014, what is referred to as a as a coup. Um, in other words, you know the you know the um, the deposing of of, a, of an elected. Um, government and many people don't know that so let's talk a little bit more in detail about that was there actually a coup did the u.s actually um play a huge role in 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 stating uh in overthrowing a government and and stating a regime of its choosing there and if so i mean that would be a, a really interesting place to start um It
1: certainly would, and I believe that is the operative part of this this recent history anyway in terms of what's going on there. So we would go go back, say, to um, late 2013, where um, relations between Ukraine and Russia were becoming problematized, shall we say, because of the Yanukovych government at that time um, trying to straddle that line between relations with the uh, EU and relations with Russia and receiving pressure from both sides And it was being framed uh, in Europe and in the Western media as Yanukovych is essentially he's he's a Russian sympathizer and he's uh, not representing the people of Ukraine. And so you started to see more demonstrations and people um, rising up against what was perceived as this pro-Russian leader. And that was not just tacitly, but explicitly supported by people like the aforementioned Victoria Newland, who showed up on November 12th of 2013. Uh, They're in uh, in Ukraine, in Kiev, literally handing out food to protesters on the streets in a photo op that you can see pictures of handing out cookies and other such things. Here's here's U.S. support. And oh, by the way, announcing, yes, five billion dollars in aid that had gone to democracy promotion groups in Ukraine uh, so I think that is an incredibly important part of the story. And of course, that fast forwards into that leaked conversation, which has become infamous in which Victoria Nuland was discussing uh, uh, the infamous part, of course, is the fuck the EU pronouncement that Victoria Nuland made in that leaked audio. But the more operative part was that she was discussing the the formation of the the post-coup government. At that time, before the coup had taken place, including um, talking about uh, Yats as our man and all of this, and it ends up Yats and ends up getting into the positions um, of, of power that they were talking about. So that was that was an important moment. Um, but the I think the operative moment, in the, the real turning point, happened in February um, during the Maidan Square massacre or whatever it was, where snipers started opening fire on the crowds, resulting in sixty deaths, including both protesters and police officers. And as evidence started to emerge later on, this was not Ukrainian government forces. This was outside operatives that were firing on both sides in order to gin up the crisis, which then led to the dramatic events of 2014 that we saw, including the unconstitutional but maybe that's that doesn't really matter. Ouster of Yanukovych in a vote that again had no constitutional authority. But at any rate, he was outed, and the new government was placed in. So I think that is important, it's vitally important information to understand to to understand why Russia might be doing what it is doing right now. That is not to justify war or the dropping of bombs or anything of that sort. But it is at least to understand what is happening, which I think is the base level that you would expect. the the media would want uh, an informed citizenry to know about. But for some reason, we are not told about these, these events.
0: Mm, Okay. I, I guess what that, what I want to talk about now is what is the real meaning of the Ukrainian situation? Because on the one hand, you know, we've got a situation where, um, war with Russia over Ukraine just doesn't make any sense if, um, you know, Ukraine is geopolitically significant to Russia, but it is not significant to NATO. Um, and, and many commentators, many sensible commentators accept this. And war with Russia would clearly be highly inimical to the aims of global economic feudalism desired by um, very powerful organizations like the World Economic Forum, and presumably its trusty servants in high office throughout governments. So what, what what's really going on there? I mean, it, it, on the one hand, it seems as though um both russia the us and nato are risking blowing up the planet over an insignificant part of the world well it's not insignificant because lives the lives of people matter everywhere obviously and and war is smashing those lives but geopolitically it just doesn't make sense so what what's the bigger picture
1: well, actually, I would say not only is it not insignificant insofar as human lives are always significant, but also uh, Ukraine, in particular, has always been sort of the the crossroads towards invasion to Russia. So it has been run through many times by many people on their way to Moscow, and I think we're seeing some sort of version of that, but yeah, a preemptive one in reverse. I, I again, how do you how do you frame what's happening there? But yeah, the point is an important one. What is the what is the larger strategy at play here? Why? Why are we moving towards such a a point of outright brinksmanship between global nuclear superpowers over Ukraine? But they're not even part of NATO. What's happening? And I think we have to understand this in terms of um, that old that old canard that you've heard many times: the new world order that was announced in the fall of the Soviet Union. Specifically, I mean, it's been talked about; it's been in occurrent since Wilson back in the 19 teens. But the new world order was announced. Um, as this, uh, hey, the the fall of the Soviet Union, we have this chance to create this new world order of new global relations in which uh, it's not the law of the jungle, it's going to be an order among nations, which of course seems to be, well, that's the global vision for the world economic forum cronies and what have you, a global order that's all presided over by a handful of ruling elite. And this seems to destabilize that. But actually I see it as part of an operation towards the creation of a New World Order. Uh, you cannot um, create a New World Order without smashing the Old World Order. And this is the smashing of the Old World Order. And it's actually being done in such a way as to present the dialectic from which we can choose to be on Team NATO, or we can choose to be on Team Bricks, shall we say. However, we want to frame that other side of what is being demonized right now. And these are our two options. And you can choose to yay NATO, or you can choose to yay Putin. But you can't actually be skeptical of both sides and where they are leading us. And I I want to to stress that isn't it interesting that in that exact same clip that is making the rounds right now of Klaus Schwab saying, uh, bragging about how he penetrated the cabinets around the world and Canadians. Who is the first name he mentions as one of his World Economic Forum Young Global Leaders who is on, on board with the World Economic Forum agenda? Vladimir Putin. Yes, of course, Putin himself, a World Economic Forum Young Global Leader. Um, there, there is a broader um, game, a gambit that is at play here uh, in, my, in my point of view. At any rate, I see it quite clearly that we are being situated to either if, if we are uh, anti-war in the Western world and against NATO aggression, then, that, then we have to be on the side of Russia and China who are going to stand up for human freedom. I don't think it's going to work that way. And you might look at the populations of Russia and China and how they are treated by their own governments to get an understanding of what a new world order led by the BRICS might actually look like. I don't think it's going to be sunshine and rainbows.
0: Okay, but then if Vladimir Putin is um, a chummy globalist and um, mentioned in in warm terms by um, Klaus Schwab, is he not then failing to play by the globalist rulebook in what he's doing? And if so, does that not mean that globalist outlook and ideology is quite fractured?
1: I think it's also important to, uh, because we tend to lose sight of the fact that when we refer to world leaders as uh, personally, that Putin is Russia, and that Schultz is G- Germany and Trudeau is Canada, we lose sight of the fact that that has always been just a, a rhetorical flourish. That That isn't actually literally true. So uh, we have to at least understand the that Putin himself, whatever, whatever he thinks he is doing and whatever game he believes he is playing is not the outright 100% ruler of everything that happens in Russia, and that there are different uh, circles. There are the the oligarchs, there are the St. Petersburg clique that uh, infests, say, the Russian Central Bank, etc. And there are different factions that are playing within Russia as well. So I think we have to understand that there's a much, much more complicated game going on than just saying Putin, Schwab, Trudeau are this new world order. But having said that, yes, I, 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 this is the part that I think is difficult to, to wrap pe- for people to wrap their minds around because any conflict, of course, well, conflict cannot be part of the plan, can it? How could conflict be part of the plan? I think conflict is the thing that leads us through the dialectic to what will inevitably be presented as the saving grace of all of this. And I think that narrative has been implanted for at least the last couple of decades with, say, the Iraq invasion. Clearly, absolutely illegal, total disaster on every level. It was an outright abuse of world hegemonic superpower that everyone can see. And a growing sentiment uh, went from supporting the US and and being sympathetic to them in, in the post 9-11 period to hating the U.S. and what it is doing around the world and seeing it as an enemy of freedom, that's a quite a dramatic change that's taken place that, well, what are we going to do? We need a new world order to emerge from this. So I, having said that, I, I, it's not that I think that every single person who is playing a part in this is Necessarily consciously working towards this, but I think this is the sort of the broader net uh, through which we can see that whatever, whatever actually takes place, they're going to put the narrative spin on it that the ultimate thing we're going to need from this is, well, the unit UN isn't working, we're going to need a, a bigger body with stronger teeth to actually keep the peace uh, among nations and it's going to have to obviously we're going to have to deal in russia and china in a more thorough going way if we're going to want them to cooperate with the world system blah blah blah. i'm not talking next few years i'm talking next few decades we're going to see this changeover that's going to take place and what's going to emerge from that i think is means we tend to think in terms of years they tend to think i think in terms of decades it's check checkers versus chess
0: okay In other words, crises lead to what crises real crises manufactured or not leads to proposed solutions, which leads to greater centralization as the answer, which um, leads to less freedom. Is that uh, a way of encapsulating it? Yes. Let's talk about climate change and the climate catastrophe, man-made global warming. Now, backdrop to climate change um the one or at least the backdrop i will choose anyway because like you say where, where do you begin but let's let's begin uh, in more recent times we've had a recent ipcc report that was timed for release just before um uh august 20 well in august 2021 just before the conference of parties 26 cop 26 held at the end of last year now in that report uh, the un chief described the situation that the report as a a code red for humanity, whilst you had UK climate change activist websites declaring, we need much more uh, than goals, we need clear and ambitious plans for how countries will reduce their emissions. So most people are unaware that there might just be credible alternative narratives to the Greta Thunberg, stroke IPCC global warming theories and predictions. How do you introduce someone who's not aware of dissenting climate science to, to the idea that climate science may not be as settled as some would have us believe? And if so, how unsettled is it in your opinion?
1: Uh, if I had a good answer for that, I would uh, absolutely have deployed it by now. Uh, <laughs> uh, I find this, I- interestingly enough, when I started doing this, uh, the, the corporate report, I expected a lot of pushback on a lot of different things that I talked about at that time. 9-11, uh, what really happened on 9 and things like that. Very controversial subjects. But actually, the one that I have most consistently heard from the most vociferous uh, opponents about is climate change, and how dare I suggest that the IPCC is not floating on the clouds and predicting exactly what will happen 100 years from now. Um, So uh, there is no easy way to introduce people to this, but I would say that perhaps the opportunity is now here for anyone who has seen the insanity of the medical um, response to uh, COVID-19 over the past couple of years, and the fact that doctor after doctor comes out and tries to say something, whoever they are, whatever the credentials were, immediately discredited because they are not saying the right thing. And you get millions and millions of doctors who do go along with the right thing, even if they do not believe it to be true. So anyone who has seen that and understands that process and then comes back and says, but how could so many scientists be lying about global warming? then you haven't understood what has happened in the past couple of years. So I think that might be a way to reframe things that people might be able to see at this point. But having said that, it is important to understand whatever you think about the uh, number of degrees of warming that's going to take place based on whatever parts per million of carbon dioxide, this is not a scientific Question: This is a political question, and it has been framed specifically in political and financial terms since its very inception. And we can go back, for example, to the founding of the IPCC and the UNFCCC, under which it runs, to the early 1990s, specifically stemming out of the, uh, the 92 Rio de Janeiro Earth Conference organized by Morris Strong. Who is Morris strong. He must have been some environmental crusader who was all green. And, oh, wait, no, he was an oil oil tycoon um, who was in the ambit of the Rockefeller family that uh, also became this leading light of the UN environmental movement who formed the UNFCCC and other such things. And specifically, the uh, started the IPCC with the mandate not to, um, to, to, find the truth, whatever it is, but to investigate solely and only the man-made causes of climate change. And then was uh, set up so that its its annual report, or not annual, uh, whatever it is, every few years, when they issued their report, um, that report, uh, the summary for policymakers, is released several months before the scientific study that supposedly underlies that summary. And then Uh, the part that they don't like to advertise but is documentably true, they take the summary for policymakers, which is arrived at through a consensus um, discussion amongst uh, policymakers, literally government members, and then they conform the science to be in line with what is said in the summary for policymakers. That is how that actually functions. And when you look at the 20,000 scientists that actually contribute to that IPCC report, you find that it generally includes graduate students and uh, people doing research and uh, doctoral research. It includes um, uh, uh, references that are derived from pamphlets from Greenpeace and other such organizations. This is not a scientific, it is not the scientific document that people believe it to be. There are many, 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 many layers of fraud and deception that are going on here. But the bottom line of this, in my opinion, is that precisely this is a political process that is identifiably being led for financial reasons. And we saw that, I think, unmasked most obviously at that last conference of the parties in Glasgow, where the Glasgow Financial Alliance on net zero um, was formed to steward over the $130 Dollars in investments that have now been earmarked for this transition to the green economy that is now being go- going to be presided over by the good folks at BlackRock and Bloomberg and Vanguard and places like this. So, oh, what? Why? They're just, they love the environment so much. Uh, of course, that is on its face a ridiculous thing that nobody um, who has two brain cells to rub together should believe, but don't believe me. Talk, uh, there was a Uh, a whistleblower whose name is going to escape my memory speaking extemporaneously like this, but there was a whistleblower from uh, uh, BlackRock. He was formerly a um, a head of some portfolio management at BlackRock who came out to say, you know, I don't, they're not really doing this in a green way. They're just doing it to make money. (laughs) Wow. I never thought of that. Um, So there's, there's a lot to be said there, but uh, how do you start to, how do you start to break through the conditioning that we have all had and that I had to break through myself when I first started looking at this subject, that this is just about saving the earth because everyone wants to save the earth. Everybody wants, everybody understands that we are polluting the earth. That is a bad thing. But how can that crisis again be used and weaponized politically and financially for the benefit of a few? We're seeing it happen right now.
0: Well, I mean, one thing that jarred as I was investigating the um, Ukraine crisis was that um, Ukraine, the Ukraine crisis has a lot to do with um, natural gas and protection of US markets for natural gas. And um, uh, Germany has made a strategic decision to increase its reliance on liquefied natural gas um, as it, as it, as it um, winds down coal fired stations. But that in itself surely is not a, a net zero strategy um, but you know that
1: that zero a- is of course <laughs> a swindle um but i think it's also important to to look at a, a report that was issued by the uk fires um group last year which is a consortium that involved i believe oxford and, and some other groups um that could put out a report on absolute zero which is to say that, oh, net zero, of course, that's a scam because every government's just going to say, well, this offsets that so we can continue to you know business as usual. No, 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 no. We need to go for absolute zero, as in zero carbon emissions of any sort at all by the year 2050. And read through that report and see the world that they envision uh, coming out of that. We will have to shut down airports uh, gradually over the next decade so that by the 2030s, there will be no international air travel. There will be no international freight shipping. Um, uh, because there's, there's no way to do that until we get nuclear-powered uh, f- uh, shipping containers and, and such things. Um, we're going to have to stop all construction, all new construction, until we can solve the problem of how, how I mean, we can't use concrete. We can't use other things that require inputs. And they are framing this as a good thing. This is the way forward. This is how we're, but it is absolutely in. spelled out in black and white, it is the neo-feudal society. And it will be stewarded over by a small group of elite elitists who have access to the resources and to nature and to, uh, of course, well, we have to fly around the earth to our conferences and do whatever we want, but you will have your carbon allowance. And we have to situate this in the broader historical perspective of the technocracy movement that arose in the 1930s under Technocracy, Inc., headed by Howard Scott, but really Um, The thinker behind it was uh, 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 Hubbard, um, whose name is escaping me at the moment, but uh, of Hubbard's peak, i.e. peak oil. He was a a petroleum um, uh, uh, geologist for Shell Oil and others. But he also headed the technocracy movement in the 1930s, which was this idea, we're going to have to put, uh, get rid of national governments. That's a thing of the past. We're going to have technates that are going to be stewarded over by technical experts who are going to, Uh, manage the world economy and perfectly manage inputs and outputs by calculating the energy inputs into all of productive capacity and and then balancing that by issuing energy credits to individuals. It would be like a universal basic income measured in joules. And they would give you a certain amount of energy each month, and you could spend that energy on buying products. So your products would be measured in energy. Th- that was the vision of technocracy in the 1930s. The technocracy movement, I believe there is still is a technocracy, Inc., but that's, that's a sideshow. The, the, but that idea was embedded, in, uh, certainly at Columbia University, where technocracy got uh, launched, and then where uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski was making his name as a professor back in the 19. 19- early 1970s when he was plucked out of academic obscurity by none other than David Rockefeller to co-found the Trilateral Commission to start the process of essentially modernizing technocracy. Um, Brzezinski wrote a book at the time called Between Two Ages that has a lot to do with this. But I think that is the vision going forward into the 21st century. Energy credits being issued as a type of universal basic income. And we, uh, the plebs at the bottom, we will have our allowance and no more. And you will be able to spend this much energy each month, citizen. And now they're talking about implementing carbon ration cards. That That was a talking point in the UK even a decade ago. It is coming.
0: Well, now, that's a very good segue into the economy that I wanted to talk about. Um, because, you know, COVID lockdowns uh, have provided a prime example, particularly with the, the, the chilling precedent set in Ottawa of, of controlling um, freezing transactions, you know, for donating to the wrong people. But actually, what you describe now, this idea of controlling your energy consumption, um, seems to me to be very much linked to this goal of, um, central bank digital currencies, right? Um, there's got to be a, a connection. If, if you're going to be a skeptic, you know, on the one hand, the, 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 the central bank, uh, finance heads will, will tell you that this is a marvelous new way of, of, of making, um, the economy more efficient. But on the other hand, what should we worry about central bank digital currencies? And if so, why?
1: Yes, I believe we should be concerned about this. And I will tell you why. I I think the best way to do this would be to envision a trucker convoy, say, five years in the future. And how would that look? So if we are in a state that has implemented a central bank digital currency that then becomes the primary method of payment, I would assume that it would not be the only method of payment, but I, it would, I'm assuming, become a fairly popular method of payment fairly quickly. As, for example, we just saw in Beijing with the Olympics, where they rolled out the ECNY, the digital yuan on in a big scale and now hey look they're doing most of their transactions by this new digital central bank digital currency imagine that so i think that will become a uh, primary and and uh, uh, the main method of payment in the near future so how would you go about donating for example to the trucker convoy in the central bank digital currency we're talking about programmable money um, which can be Algorithmically limited in any for, by any criteria you like. For example, um, we saw in the last couple of years uh, in Australia and other places they put geographical limits on your ability to travel. You can travel five kilometers from your house, but no further unless you have special permission from the government or what have you, or special slip. Well, in the future, they'll be able to program that into your money. Oh, your your phone says you are more than five kilometers from your house, so you cannot spend your money at this point. That is the the type of granular control over the human population that we're looking at in the very near future. And in fact, yes, this does nexus into, I think, everything that we are talking about today, because it is all, as I say, part of the same agenda to control the human population by a very few people. And... That that manifests itself in, in any number of different things, not just the digital money, but also, of course, the digital identification, which will be tied into the vaccine passports, which will also be tied into a social credit type system. You protested the wrong way. You gave money to those truckers. You're going to have to be delisted from the system, um, which, again, ties into the entire agenda and ultimately to your your universal basic income that you're going to get because the robots are going to take our jobs, but it will be issued in energy consumption credits. And, oh, you've used your energy consumption credits for the the month, citizen. You're going to have to starve the rest of the month.
0: James, each of these topics um, provides huge amounts of of fodder for further discussion. Um, I want to get some final thoughts from you, particularly about... um, your thoughts on the role of mainstream media uh, uh, in the last sort of two years in the COVID crisis? Um, you know, as as a member of a group called Journalists Against COVID Censorship, I just I'd like to get your views on on the state of mainstream media um, and whether or not it has, in your view, shot itself in the foot or perhaps even the head, or whether it will continue to survive or What are your thoughts?
1: I will expand your question, not over just the last two years, but say the last 20 years, because it is a fact that I would not be here speaking to you right now. I would not have the Corbett Report at all. I would not have done any of this if I had had the sense back in 2006 when I first started looking into alternative information for myself, that this was being at least addressed by the mainstream media, let alone, I mean, even if they addressed it only to ultimately dismiss it, if if I thought they were going to give a fair hearing to some of this information, I wouldn't be here doing this. I am doing this precisely as a rebuke of the entire system of establishment control of information that so clearly exists and clearly existed decades ago, clearly exists today. And so... Yes. Do I think they've shot themselves in the foot or the head? Yes, I do think so. The dinosaur media is referred to as the dinosaur media because it really is going extinct. And people are, we can see this in trust ratings, polls, all sorts of things over and over. Trust in media is declining at uh, an alarming rate if you happen to be in one of those establishment legacy media institutions. Unfortunately, the information control paradigm is not limited to establishment legacy media. And uh, uh, it was (laughs) something that I enjoyed a couple of decades ago when I first started doing this work and thinking, you know, it's nice that they continue to dismiss everything that's online. Oh, these silly internet bloggers. (laughs) And now, unfortunately, they are taking that much more seriously. So we are seeing thoroughgoing censorship of all of the establishment platforms, the big tech platforms uh, online right now, and even more worryingly, I think information operations that are going on even within the independent media space to insert various narratives, to derail certain discussions, to lead people down blind alleys, look at the QAnon phenomenon of the last few years for a prime example of where things are going to go from here. It's going to get harder and harder to put together valuable Uh, information. uh, But I think people are starting at least to question what they're seeing on CNN, BBC, CBC, what have you on a daily basis.
0: Well, uh, first they mock you, then they fight you, then you win. Hopefully, that's what happens. Hopefully, yes. (laughs) James, um, we could talk a lot more about these subjects and I hope that we will get to in the not so distant future. I want to thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, It's been a very illuminating discussion. Um, and this, for the benefit of my listeners who will be listening
1: in on this, could you describe your group and what it is you do?
0: So, um, as you say, you'd, well, we are a group that um, were born out of a frustration of um, the way the media narrative was um, so in lockstep with uh, government propaganda and we obviously knew that there was another side of the story to tell and that um, there were dissenting scientists who had different views of the, the medical science and, and all of this was clearly being suppressed um, and we got together and um, decided that we would try to get a an alternative n- dissenting voices across because that at the end of the day is what um, media debate is about and that's what the media is supposed to be doing. It is supposed to be holding power to account, not agreeing with it at every um, step. So, you know, we've we've had uh, it's been a struggle. Um, many of the members in our group um, are associated with legacy media systems and uh, have experienced severe repression there. Um, they operate an, anon- anonymous, anonymously with our group, um, contributing to the group as in, as they can. Other members of the group um, are, are are able to um, express themselves because they have had a history of doing independent um, media analysis. So. We are trying to do our bit in, in um, giving voice to dissenting narratives.
1: Excellent. Well, I have to get running to my next interview, but I uh, thank you very much for having this conversation and I hope we do get to continue it in the future.
0: Thank you very much, James.